Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 124 with Paul Zach. Paul is a true expert on trust and oxytocin, the brain chemical associated with it. And he brings it in the lab, in his TED Talk, and in this interview, where you'll learn, one, how to measure and manage trust in the workplace, two, the benefits of a high-trust workplace, and three, why hugs should be the new handshake. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcripts or the links to items mentioned, you can find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep124. So here's a quick bit about Paul. Paul J. Zach, PhD, is founding director of the Center for Neuroeconomic Studies and professor of economics, psychology, and management at Claremont Graduate University. He was part of the team of scientists that first made the connection between oxytocin and trust. His TED Talk on the topic has received more than 1.4 million views. Paul J. Zach, PhD, is the author of the new book, Trust Factor, The Science of Creating High-Performance Companies. It's also the author of The Moral Molecule and has appeared on ABC World News Tonight, CNN, Fox Business, Dr. Phil, and Good Morning America. He lives in Claremont, California. Here's Paul. Paul, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you, Pete. Oh, I got such a kick out of your TED Talk and your book. So I want to know, first of all, what's the scoop behind Sister Mary Mastella and her influence on you, your career, and, and I may have some follow-ups? Since those years of Catholic school getting hit in the knuckles with the ruler. No, <laughs> Mary Maristella was the nun name of my mom. Yeah. So my mom was a nun before she became my mom. So she at some point decided that wasn't the career for her and dropped out and met my dad. Within three months, they were married and they stayed married for 55 years. How about that? Pretty crazy. So, you know, my mom had a very black and white view of human behavior is there right or wrong? And it seems like to me, most of the interesting human behavior is in the gray zone. And somehow she leached into my research, you know, as a professor. And I started really thinking about that kind of good and bad behavior. And I spent a lot of time thinking about this question. Why are we ever nice with people? Why do we cooperate with people? And sometimes people that we like or love, we sometimes treat them badly. Mm -hmm. So what's the deal with that, right? So what's going on in our brains that might tell us, hey, Pete, great guy, want to hang out with him, could certainly work with him. And then, I don't know, Bob seems really sketchy to me. So <laughs> that seems like a pretty useful mechanism if I could find it. And as you know, it took you know, 10 years and lots of research and tons of blood draws and all kinds of things. Wow, yeah, that's so fascinating. And from that, you determined a couple of things associated with a key molecule that makes a world of difference. What's the story there? Right. So we, based on the animal literature, hypothesized that this brain chemical oxytocin might be the signal of trust in human beings or cooperation or familiarity. And there was a rich animal literature, but your brain is a very conservative organ because it takes so much energy to run. So oxytocin also works during reproduction as a hormone to help contract the uterus and promote milk flow. And so from a human perspective or from a medical perspective, it really just was slotted into this reproductive hormone slot for women, but men's brains make it too. And we developed a protocol 
to measure oxytocin in human beings, as I said earlier, with very rapid blood draws. And in doing that, we showed that when someone tangibly, intentionally trusts you, your brain makes this chemical. And the more of this chemical that's made, the more you reciprocate that trust by being trustworthy. And then we spent about 10 years looking at the promoters and inhibitors of oxytocin release to understand those variations. So I love my wife. I've been married for 20 some years. And every once in a while, I just think about for half a second about, man, I'd like to throw her off the balcony. Right. So (laughs) why? Because I'm stressed out or she's stressed out. And so and you suppress that, of course. So where's that come from? So it turns out, for example, that high levels of stress inhibit this connection bonding chemical oxytocin. Anyway, so it's a complicated story. It's an interesting story. But as I was doing this work about, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, companies started knocking on my door saying, hey, we think trust is important at our workplace and you are some trust expert. Why don't you help us build a culture of trust? And Pete, I have to tell you how naive I was. My first answer was, oh yeah, I'll come in with needles and tubes. I'll take blood from your employees and we'll measure oxytocin. And you know, their faces just turned white. And they're like, oh, no, we can't do that. <laughs> Subsequently, some very nice companies, a couple mentioned in my new book, Trust Factor, including Zappos and Herman Miller, did let me come in, take blood from their employees, measure brain activity, measure their EEG. We did a lot of work with some very nice companies so that we could develop tools that would allow us to identify not only how much trust is within our organization, but importantly, the building blocks that leaders could use to create a culture of trust and manage that culture for high engagement and high performance. Oh, yes, that's perfect. And that's exactly what I want to dig into now a little bit. So in your book, Trust Factor, you kind of break that down into eight components, which spell out the word oxytocin as an acronym. That's some of the strongest acronym game I've ever seen. Nice work. (laughs) So what are some of those components in terms of the rundown that comprising trust in organizations? Right. So I certainly can go through those with you, but I want to make a real important point for listeners, which is It's not just a cute acronym. When we did this research, we developed an online tool that companies can use to assess their trust without taking blood from employees. And my view is that culture, we've shown that culture is a huge lever for high performance and it should be measured and managed. So once you can measure trust within an organization, then you need to manage that. And so the management part came from me essentially not being able to tell companies how to increase their trust. And so we did lots of research and drew in research from some other labs as well. And we found these eight factors, as you said, that have the acronym oxytocin. So that stands for ovation, expectation, yield, transfer, openness, caring, invest, and natural. And an important point here is that all these are derived from the neuroscience. So we started by asking both the most simple but the most profound question about work which is, why do people actually show up? And the, you know, the trivial answer is, well, you get paid if you don't show up. But okay, why do you show up and actually try? Right. So the sort of standard view that we all learn in Econ 101 is that, well, work provides disutility, and I have to pay you to compensate you for the pain in the butt you know, things you have to do at work. Except sometimes that's not true. Sometimes, right. like for you and me, for example, I love what I do and I work way more than I'm paid because I just dig it and I got a lot of pleasure from it and I got a great team. So once we asked that, we asked, okay, what kind of culture would there be 
if people showed up who weren't being paid. So consider everyone a volunteer. Now let's build culture from scratch and ask, what do we know about the neuroscience of social interaction that would tell us about what would make people work their butts off for a group goal? And so we found these two key factors. One is trust and its building blocks. And the second is what I call transcendent purpose, why that organization exists at all. And because each of those eight oxytocin factors is derived from the neuroscience, the neuroscience tells us specific ways to get the most bang for your buck, if you will. So if I want to tweak these factors to increase trust, then the neuroscience will guide me on how to get the biggest impact on brains, brain activation, and therefore on subsequent behavior at work. So let me give you a concrete example, then I promise to take a breath. So the first factor, ovation, that's my word for recognizing high performers. So we know from the neuroscience that individuals who are recognized close in time to when a goal is met, who are recognized for meeting a goal, not for trying, who are recognized tangibly, personally, publicly, unexpectedly, all those have a much bigger impact on the brain than when you don't do those things. And so you're setting up potentially a tight feedback loop that says, in our culture, we value people who really hit the ball out of the park, and we want to publicly recognize you, Pete, for the amazing work you've done. Now, tell us about how you did it. Tell us how you ran your team. Tell us what problems you have. So ovations both give us a chance to build on tight feedback loops and also set up aspirations for those who are witnessing that celebration. But it also gives us a chance to debrief and identify best practices. Because as you know, every project you do, there's going to be some weird crisis that's going to happen. And by sharing that information about how you overcame that difficulty, now the whole organization learns about that. And then we can avoid that problem in the future. Oh my gosh, so much I'd love to dig into there. So, all right, I'll prioritize a bit. So these eight components that you laid out there, in your experience working with companies and doing the O factor survey, did I say that right? Correct. O yes, factor, yes, yeah. I took the test. Sure. It was really fun. It was that ofactor.com slash book, right, is where you can take that. Right. And so I'm intrigued to know sort of what's the breakdown in terms of you know how common we see high levels of trust versus low or mediocre levels of trust in organizations across the world? That's a wonderful question. And people have taken this survey all around the world. And so we marshal a bunch of different kinds of evidence in the book for the impact of trust on performance. But your first question is, you know, what does trust look like? And so everything from companies I've gone and worked with that have implemented changes so we can track before and after trust levels and, again, performance levels on, you know, multiply measured, to doing a nationally representative survey in the U.S. of employees. And so we find there is a big trust deficit in the U.S. There are about, you know, if you look at the top 20% of companies of trust in the U.S., compare those to the bottom 20%, you see a huge amount of loss value that hasn't been created because people are not being empowered and held accountable for what they're doing. So here's just some data from that. So comparing the top and bottom quartiles, we find that people who work in high trust companies report 74% less chronic stress. They have 106% more energy at work, 50% higher productivity. They take 13% fewer sick days. They say they're engaged at work 76% more. And even interesting measures outside of work are better when you work in a high trust organization. So those in high trust organizations are 29% more satisfied with their lives outside of work. So they're happier spouses, parents, citizens, and they face 70% less burnout as well. So 
something interesting is going on here, which we have worked to create really human-centric workplaces where people are empowered to control their work lives, to make decisions, to execute as they see fit. From a leadership perspective, it looks much more like a coaching model than a kind of micromanagement model. And we know from lots of research in psychology that what you control, what you do at work, then you are happier and healthier, psychologically and physically happier and healthier. So, you know, many of the interventions I talk about in the book are very low cost. And, you know, the return, actually I do a calculation in the book on the return to investment to increasing trust levels. And it's very, very high. It's, you know, $25 to the dollar spent. So, mm-hmm. you know, why would you not do this? It's good for the humans. It'll improve performance of the organization. And you reduce, you know, turnover of employees. You reduce sick days. I mean, everything really gets better because you're not being ground down at work. Well, that's so fantastic. Well, now I'd like to maybe zoom into the vantage point of an individual professional. So let's say you are a manager or even an individual contributor. I'd love to hear, so what are some of the top behaviors, practices that one ought to start doing right away to boost the oxytocin flowing and the trust and get a taste of some of these fantastic results you laid out there? Yeah, thank you. I mean, that's the key question, right, is where do I want to go first? So what we recommend organizations do is do a survey, their own survey, use our survey, whatever you like, and identify of these eight factors, which is the lowest. So like, you know, everything in economics or biology, for that matter, the more you increase something, the less impact you have. So there's a sort of a concave effect. So let's say if your score on transfer, which is our notion for self-management, is at the 90th percentile, there's no reason to get excited about pushing that to 100. You know, you're not going to get much bang for the buck. So we start with the lowest factor. And across our nationally representative sample, that is invest, mm. which is our word for facilitating both professional and personal development of employees. And so if I wanted to improve invest, then I can sit and talk about growth potential. So we know, again, psychologically, that's very important. So we developed something we call the whole person review, which gives people once a year a chance to look forward instead of looking backwards. So if you're following this, the system's created high trust culture, I, as your supervisor slash coach, I'm giving you feedback all the time on performance. Right. I'm celebrating the wins. If things go badly, I'm working with you to, to you know, solve that problem. I'm a facilitator of your success, if you will. So I don't need to spend the time in the annual review looking backwards because I've given you feedback Literally every day, I do a daily, I love the daily huddle. I don't know about you, but the daily huddle is great. Do a five-minute huddle, do a weekly uh, one-on-one meeting, are we meeting milestones? So again, great accountability, but that employee is executing as he or she sees fit. So again, so invest is generally the lowest across the companies that's in our national sample. So what do I do with that? Well, one is to look forward, to ask, hey, Pete, you've worked here for three years. What job would you like me to help you get next? Mm-hmm. Now, that's a really provocative question, right? So I want to know, maybe that job's here, maybe that job's not here. So a lot of the really smart companies that have employees who are highly productive, like Google, like Microsoft, they promote having their employees go elsewhere. So if I worked at Google for five years and I go to, I don't know, Oracle for three years, I learn a whole bunch of stuff that Oracle pays for, and then I come back to Google they call these boomerang employees. Mm-hmm. So I boomerang back, and now I'm even more productive than I was because I got all this training from Oracle. So Google does a really good job at maintaining a database of former Googlers. And then when they have openings, just emailing them, say, hey, we got this great job. 
might be good for you. Think about coming back. So same kind of thing. So I want to talk about that with the people who work with me, which is where do you want to be in the next couple of years, right? What would you really like to be doing? And maybe you're like really happy where you are. Awesome. Let's make sure you're really successful at that, at that job. But say, look, I really like to do this other thing. And this company doesn't have that. It's not really available to me. It's like, great. Well, I want to give you some more training so that you can transition into something that you actually love to do. Because if I don't do that, Pete, yeah, I'm holding on to this employee longer, but that person's frustrated. They're not going to perform the highest levels because they're just bored. Right. So part of this is mentioning that. The second is, you know, personal perspective. So many really smart companies that we profile in the book, Google, SAS Institute, Herman Miller, they facilitate personal development as well, from health and wellness to healthy foods to subsidizing adoptions, elder care. So really want to make sure that your family life is tight, that you're happy outside of work, because as you know, you've had employees, if you're not happy outside of work, you're not going to be happy and productive inside of work. Right. So I think the punchline is really thinking about what are those eight components is your weakest in and then focusing on those. So that's a long answer. So let me be more simple. Summarizing all this, you need to see people you work with as full and complete human beings, which means they're imperfect, they have emotions, they have a personal life, and seeing them fully for who they are. And when you do that, you both give them the real gift of recognition as the complex creatures that we are, but also empower them to show who they really are, to be their authentic selves at work, and to recognize that none of us is perfect and none of us can do this alone. We've got to come together as a team. And when we have team goals, particularly stretch goals, it motivates the brain to create oxytocin and a host of other neurochemicals I talk about in the book that get rid of all the crap sometimes we have at work and the stresses. And we focus on this joint project that we've got to do, this key endeavor. And when we finish that, then we get to celebrate and then we've built these bonds. And then the next project is easier. The next project is even easier. Well, it's so exciting to think about and see that unfolding. And so I'd love to hear. So if invest is a component that many organizations are falling short on and need to do more of, is there anything else that leaps to mind in terms of organizations are kind of doing a lot of this and they would be well advised to cut it out? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the number one thing that comes to mind is fear-based management. You may know the history better than me, but it seems like it's a holdover from the 18th century, uh, you know, I don't know, pin factory, Adam Smith kind of labor thing. But nowadays, if I want top performers, I better create a culture where these people can thrive and flourish and grow, or they're going to go somewhere else. There's a, definitely a war for talent. So I think this fear-based management we know from a neuroscience perspective inhibits oxytocin release and diminishes performance people end up having what psychologists call learned helplessness. So if I ever come in your office and every time I do, or most of the time I do, you scream and yell at me and threaten me, I just give up, right? And I've worked for guys like that. And I just like, man, I'm watching the clock. Like five o'clock, I'm out of here. And 5.05, I'm on LinkedIn looking for a new job. <laughs> so, you know, fear is a great short-term motivator. You know, if you've ever, uh, I don't know, went skydiving or does whitewater rafting, a bit of fear is not bad. And so I talk about, how stress is not a bad thing at work, and even making you happy at work is not what the neuroscience says I should do. I should challenge you. I should give you the opportunity to do something extraordinary, give you the tools to be successful, and then recognize if you meet that goal. 
So I don't want a low-stress workplace. I don't want everyone singing kumbaya and not getting any work done. But I do want high performers who are in a culture that recognizes that peak performance is the goal. And most of the time, that goal probably will be missed. But when it's hit, it's extraordinary and it's got to be recognized. So if I'm going to fear you into it, then you know, you're just going to give up. So it's really getting rid of that even the language I talk about in the book. So I don't like the word employee. I prefer colleague. We're all working together. I don't like offices. When my lab was built, the contractor said, which corner do you want your office in? And I said, I don't want an office. I want to be moving. I'm a coach. I'm a leader. I've got to be working with people. I'm always on the move. And we talk about a number of projects we've done. For example, one at the office designer, Herman Miller, which we actually measure brain activity in open versus closed workspaces. And in fact, in an open workplace, that's noisier, that's got people moving around. People are more relaxed, they're more productive, they're more innovative in tasks we gave them to do so we could actually quantify all this. And so office design matters and how we treat each other matters. So I think getting everyone on the same team and seeing the humans in front of you instead of a piece of human capital, which sounds like a machine, I don't even know what human capital is, (laughs) skills, you're human and you're complicated and you're wonderful and you can innovate if I give you some runway. And so part of Trust Factor is really giving people runway while from a leadership perspective, making sure you're checking in, you're getting clear milestones, people are hitting their goals and also not punishing people for making mistakes. Like if it's an honest mistake and you try to innovate on something, if there's no mistakes, no innovation. Mm-hmm. So one of the companies I profile in the book is a software company called Valve that makes a bunch of online multiplayer okay. games, Left 4 Dead, others, and fascinating company. So they self-organize. You're hired, you had a desk with wheels, and you are instructed to find a group to work with on a project that to you looks, quote, interesting. Wow. Because right. <laughs> we're hiring smart people. You guys are going to find a way to create value. If you can't find a way to create value, that's eh, probably not the place for you. But if you do... You know, do something that you really dig, that you can, you know, wake up and be excited about doing. And then when we're done with the project, we'll do a 360. We'll figure out how much people contributed. We'll give people feedback. And as long as we have clear milestones as we're going through the project, we know where we're going. We know if we're hitting those goals. And Valve says in their handbook, if you screw up, we don't care. And if you screw up and it costs us money, we don't care. And if you screw up and it's publicly known and it delays the launch of a product, we don't care because we want people to innovate at the highest levels. And so the only way we can do that is not to punish you for making a mistake, an honest mistake. Oh, that is powerful. Oh, thank you. And so now I want to follow up a little bit on what you said with regard to the stress piece. What's sort of the best thinking with regard to navigating the benefits of having sort of a positive stretch, stressful sort of moment or challenge versus sort of like the chronic workplace stress that just sort of tears down and debilitates. Right. So that's that chronic stress that inhibits our ability to look forward, to be innovative, and actually to collaborate effectively. Chronic stress has a number of interesting neurochemical changes, but it narrows our focus to the here and now. It narrows our vision to just the thing in front of us. So that's not what I want from innovative employees, right? I want people who are thinking about the big picture, thinking about how to wow this client. So again, Coming from the neuroscience, it tells us not only does it sort of feel weird if I'm chronic stressing people, it's not going to be effective. And how to reduce that. So reduce uncertainty about that. Tell people why they're doing another project. 
But that challenge stress is also important. So as I said earlier, the brain is actually a very lazy organ because it takes so much energy to run. So when I have a stretch goal and my team is empowered to reach that goal, they have the resources to do it, the training to do it, and they're trusted to execute as they say fit, that is I'm giving them enough runway, then we see high performance, really much higher innovation in studies we've done, and greater enjoyment. So for listeners, if you want to do the simplest thing ever to assess your culture, the neuroscience shows and the data strongly support that people who work in high trust, high purpose cultures, purpose, again, this notion of why we even exist as an organization, they enjoy being at work. So you can reverse engineer this process. If you just want to see how your culture is working, ask employees this question, which is, on an average day, how much do you enjoy your job? One to seven. And that is what we call in mathematics a sufficient statistic. So it's one number that gives you a pretty good lay of the land for the entire company. And if you do that, you might find that, you know, the department in Kansas City is nailing it and they love what they're doing. And let me tell you, productivity will be higher, turnover will be lower. And we find that the business unit in San Diego, people do not take their jobs. And so you know, copy, copy the high performing areas, find out what those leaders are doing there, find out, are they hiring differently? Are they training differently? Are they providing, uh, I don't know, snacks in the afternoon? Just copy. That's the first thing you do. Don't even change anything from outside the company until you find out who are the exemplars within the company that you can learn from. Right on. Well, so now I want to hit just a couple more points before we hear about your favorite things. And that is in your TED talk, you prescribed eight hugs a day to get the oxytocin going and flowing. And I imagine that might be a subcomponent of the C, caring in the oxytocin world for workplace. So can you give us a sense for you know, just how much bigger of a hit or a dose of oxytocin is a hug as compared to a handshake? And why is eight the number you settled on? <laughs> yeah. So as you've learned in our conversation, I'm an evil, evil person. <laughs> and I sometimes feel like I'm a Martian and I'm trying to figure out what these humans are doing around me. And so I run experiments. I have a 25 person lab. So I have the great luxury and thank you taxpayers who fund a lot of this work. This luxury of trying experiments to figure out how to connect better to people around me. And we showed experimentally that touch releases oxytocin. And as a sort of self-experiment, because I am a Martian, I decided to experiment on myself and to see what happens if I started hugging people. And I found immediately that they connected better to me, they opened up better, our interaction was much more effective. We got to why we were meeting in the first place. And then, as you know, I did this in my TED Talk, and then I really got stuck in there. So now I really have to hug everybody when I meet them. Eight is their number because oxytocin is active in the brain for about half an hour. And I figure when you're at home, you're getting hugs from your spouse or your kids or your pet and your dog, all those things release oxytocin. But when you're out of the house for eight hours, yeah, once a day is pretty good. It means you're giving someone around you, the gift of oxytocin release, and they're likely going to reciprocate. And that means you're going to be calmer. Oxytocin reduces our stress responses. So you can be calmer. You're going to be happier. And it begins this virtuous cycle where I'm really caring about you in a really simple way. But to hug someone, you have to actually like them. You don't hug someone you don't like. Right. And also, you know, you played sports, I'm sure. I did. Like, 
who do you touch the most, right? You touch people on your team that you care about. And there's a reason that teammates are touching each other in huddle or touching each other before the game starts. We learn a lot about the people around us through touch. And I think we should embrace that. Again, at work, it's got to be appropriate touch. So what I do is I just pre-announce. I say, oh, I hug everybody. And let me tell you, about 99% of the people in the last oof, eight years of doing this say, fabulous, perfect. And 1% say, you know what, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm like, all right, that's fine. I can shake hands. No problem with that. But my preference is to hug people and it's just to move that connection up a couple of steps. So the amount of oxytocin release depends on your relationship with that person, depends on their own physiologic state. But I think the key issue is you can't make your own brain release oxytocin. You can just give that gift to somebody else. And if we start thinking about people that work that way, how can I make Pete more effective today? How can I show Pete that I really care about him? I care about his success as a human being, not just as a worker bee. Once I think of that about work as a service that I'm providing to my customers and to my colleagues, I think then we're in this high trust, high caring, high engagement kind of world that we found in our analyses creates high performance companies. Very good. So let me follow up on your exact verbiage, if I may. So you just meet someone, they extend their hand to shake yours and say, oh, hey, Paul, good to meet you. And you say what? I say, I hug everybody. (laughs) And and I open up my arms. Three words. (laughs) Yeah. And it's an amazing thing. And let me tell you who gets touched the least. And that is generally younger males. So if you're in the workforce and you stop playing sports, you're not in school anymore, and maybe you're single, I remember being in a meeting at a very large ad agency in the UK. I won't mention the name. And this guy came in late. He's about 24 years old. We started the meeting. I hugged everybody. He walks in. I give this guy a hug. And his face lit up. Wow. Because he's British. And he's 24. (laughs) And he's a single guy. He's working in London. And we need that connection. And boom. All of a sudden, now I'm connecting to that guy. He knows I care about him. We're on the same team. We're here in the room together for a reason. Let's work together as a team. Let's work together as a a rugby team or a football team or whatever he used to be on. And, you know, it's an amazing thing. So for you and for listeners, just try it a couple of times and see what happens. And you'll find it really works. Now, I should say, no creepy hugs, no grabbing people. (laughs) And also, I'm in my 50s. So I'm old enough that I'm not, you know, a threat to anybody. So, you know, I'm just a big, stupid grizzly bear of a guy. (laughs) And so, you know, don't creep people out. I mean, that's just the worst. And obviously, touch at work has got to be appropriate. Having said that, one of our longtime clients who actually allowed us to use their data in the book, which is the online shoe seller Zappos, you walk in Zappos, you feel the caring, you feel the energy. And let me tell you, all those employees are hugging each other all the time. They know each other. It's out of 1,200 employees. They know each other. They care about each other. They have nooks where they can take their computer and work with wireless and get a snack. They have a ping pong table. They have a coffee bar. There's a free tour, by the way, at Zappos. So if you're ever in Las Vegas for listeners, Sign up for the Zappos tour online. Oh, I think it's 10 bucks now, but anyway, it's mostly free. And just check it out and see what it's like to work in this really high trust workplace where people love what they do and they love the people they do it with and they trust the people they do it with. That feels so good and happy. And so it's just reassuring to hear you say that there is not really much risk or downside by saying, I hug everybody most of the time when a hand is extended to you. Yeah, try to be a human, right? Humans connect to each other. So I, I don't know why we got sold this in business school, got sold this <laughs> bill of goods that says, when you're at work, you're an automaton and you don't get to be a human. 
I'm sorry, I don't know who automatons are, but I'd rather just work with the humans. And if you're a human, you need to connect. And that's what the oxytocin work shows is that deep in our evolutionary history, deep in the old parts of our brain, we have this system that makes us want to need to connect the people around us. And who better to connect to than the people are going to spend eight or 10 hours a day, hopefully working on cool things together with like, that's just asking for connection. So that's basically what the book's about. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. So you know, I hate to end on a downer note, but I do want to touch base. You introduce a technical term in your TED Talk for those who don't seem to have much of an oxytocin response when it comes to the trustworthiness uh, tests, and that was bastards, <laughs> which is fun. So tell us, if you're working with folks in that category, any pro tips, best practices for managing the situation? Yes. And I think this also makes for people who manage others, their life a little easier. So about 5% of the population we find regularly will not release oxytocin when they get a positive social interaction. And so we've been able to profile those individuals. Half those are people having a really bad day. Oh, okay. So their stress levels are really high. Pete, you and I have been in that situation, right? Where you're just cranky to somebody and the next day you got to go into your wife or your colleague or your secretary, someone and you go, man, I was a jerk yesterday. I was having a bad day. And I realize now that I was really cranky to you and I'm really sorry. Now that's fine. We understand that and that's okay. The other about two and a half percent are psychopaths. And so we've actually done studies in prisons for criminal psychopaths. And indeed they don't release oxytocin. They see others as a means to an end. So it means whoever you hire, two or three percent of those people are just going to be bad and you can't remediate them. They're just not going to work out. Bad on you that you didn't find them and you need to cut them loose right away. So two or three percent is not bad, right? It means mm -hmm. you can't expect from yourself perfection either. So I think part of this also is allowing leaders to accept their own imperfections. You're leading a group of people. You got 500 people or five people working for you. Yeah, 2% of those, 2% of those, they're just going to be bad fits, bad hires. And I talk a little about the, in the book about firing well. So how do you fire someone and in my view, I love when I fire someone or let them go and they want to take me to lunch because they know it's coming. We've tried and it's been a bad fit. Now, the bastards won't take you to lunch. They just want to, you know, grab as many office supplies and get out the door. <laughs> so those are easy fires, but it's OK. You know, two, three percent of the people you hire, they're just bad people. I'm sorry. They're just not going to have the ability to cooperate neurologically. And again, I could tell you more about why that's the case. Genes, environment, blah, blah, blah. But cut them loose. All right. Thank you. Well, Paul, tell me, is there anything else you really want to make sure that we cover off before shifting gears and hearing about your favorite things? Yeah, I think it's not really so hard. I mean, I think the neuroscience gives you ways to get the biggest impact on brain and behavior. But a lot of this stuff is stuff you learned in first grade or your parents told you. So I end this book with a quote from longtime Herman Miller CEO, Max Dupree. And he said, the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality and the last is to say thank you. And in between the two, the leader must be a servant. So how about that as a marching order? Say please and thank you. Tell people where they're going and just help them get there. That's actually not that hard. Don't be a jerk. Just, you know, kick in, do the hard work and get her done. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Well, so now let's hear, do you have a favorite quote? Maybe it's just the one you shared, but something that you turn to for inspiration again and again. You know, I was on the faculty of Claremont Graduate University for 10 years with Peter Drucker before he died. And there's a lot of Peter Drucker in the book. So people who know Drucker's work will see, you know, a lot of the neuroscience behind many things Drucker said. And 
including actually in every chapter, I have what's called a Monday morning list. So Peter famously said, you know, don't tell me what a great meeting you had. Tell me what you're doing differently on Monday morning. So I did the same thing in the book. Read the chapter, do these five things. Do them Monday. Don't wait. <laughs> do them now. Let's get this job done. Let's make this place better. Anyway, I really like this idea. I don't know who said this, a quote, but Peter said, you know, one of his gifts also was being able to not know a lot, but ask good questions. So I think when we not only listen to others, but we give them the respect of paying them our full attention. So I try to do something I call listening with the eyes. So if you're talking to me, Pete, actually, I'm looking at your picture right now on the screen. I want to make eye contact with you. I don't want to look at my phone. I don't want to be distracted. I want to give you my full attention. So imagine how amazing it feels to have someone be fully present when you're talking to them and listen, let them finish what they're saying before you jump in and say something. So give people that respect, that honor of giving them complete attention. And it's amazing, again, how much that's going to change your interaction with people around you. It's sometimes hard to do. We're all so busy. We have so much to do. But if you can, for just, you know, 30 seconds, fully attend to someone in front of you, they will respond with oxytocin release and they will, you know, go to the mat for you. And I think that's what we want at work. We want people who have our backs, who do really care about us, who care about the mission of the organization. And once in a while, we'll wake up at three in the morning, working on some problem for work and email you and go, hey, Pete, this thing that we've been struggling with for a month, I just figured it out in the middle of the night. And that's how passionate I am. So those people are there. And if you put them in a culture where they can really grow and be recognized, they will perform at high levels. Oh, thank you. And how about, amidst all the research, if you could pick one or two favorite studies or experiments or pieces of research? Oh, gosh. You know, that's a good question. I mean, there's probably 100 studies in the book I talk about. I had to suppress the name of this company, but we worked in 2008 in the big recession. We worked with a financial services company that was doing a bailout. I mean, it was being bailed out by the U.S. government, and it was a madhouse. And it was possible this company was just going to be shut down. And to work with an amazing turnaround CEO who really kind of thumbed his nose to the government and said, this is a very good company. It's always been a very good company. It was a bad company for two years and got nailed. But he put employees first. And, you know, the employees rallied around this CEO as their turnaround guy. And this company now is, you know, pay back the government well ahead of schedule. It's, again, very profitable. But he said, it's all about the employees. And Drucker said that too, actually. He said, radically, in the 60s, he said, an organization's first responsibility is to employees, not the customers, to employees. And the work I've done suggests that's correct, right? So if I don't make you people who are doing all the hard work on the front lines, if I don't empower you, if I don't trust you, if I don't give you the tools to be successful, why are you ever going to make a customer happy if you're not engaged and love what you do? So anyway, this CEO did that wonderfully, and it really works. So again, it's human. It's a human-centric organization. Oh, right on. And how about a favorite book? You know, I have to tell you, my favorite book in the business realm is about 10 years old called The Experience Economy. If you haven't read that book, it will blow your mind about how to create experiences at work for customers and for that matter, for employees that are extraordinary, are valuable, have high margins associated with them. So people will pay for extraordinary experiences. And actually, one of the companies that profile in the book 
is Trader Joe's. And Doug Rauch, the CEO, took Trader Joe's National, told me that when they started moving out of Southern California, he had this realization that they are not a grocery store. So grocery stores are large. They sell lots of items with very low margin, so high volume, low margin. Trader Joe's, as you know, is small, higher margin, but what differentiates them is the service. And he said, we are an organization that provides an extraordinary experience for our customers. We happen to do that by selling them food, but the first thing we do is create an experience, a positive experience. And so anyway, the book spent some time talking about how they do that at Trader Joe's. So yeah, it's a crazy good book, The Experience Economy. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite tool, whether that's a product or service or app, something that you use frequently and helps you be more awesome at your job? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, we have a whole bunch of tools online at ofactor.com. And so measuring and managing culture, uh, you can do a lot of that there. I also love Slack because email now is just getting clogged up. And I love the organization that Slack gives you. And for the basic use, it's free. And so it's just an amazing product. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours that helps you be more effective? I don't do email every day and I don't do it in the morning. I try to find, I get up early and I do my most important things first thing in the morning. And for me, that's writing, that's thinking, that's planning. And if you get sucked into the email hole, even though it seems like you're getting productive stuff done, a lot of times you just do a lot of busy work. So yeah, take the first three hours. Oftentimes I'll work in the morning at home before I go to the office. And my trick is I don't get dressed which sounds gross, but mm-hmm. I mean, I'll just wear my, my pajamas or a robe or something and I'll sit at my desk with a cup of coffee and I can bang out from six to nine an amazing amount of work with a couple cups of coffee and then take a shower, get to work. And you know, you feel like, okay, I did two things that were pretty cool today in the first three hours and now I can go do the other administrative stuff I have to do. All right. And how about a particular nugget or articulation of your message that really seems to connect, resonate with folks, giving them nodding their heads, taking notes, retweeting, Kindle book, highlighting? What's a Paul original that really seems to hit the mark? Oh, how nice of you to ask. You know, I have a real simple rule, which is for every interaction I have with somebody, I want to have just slightly more love in the world. And you can interpret that word love any way you want, but I want to make that a positive experience for you. So I call this my love plus program. So any interaction with you, I want to make sure that you are happier coming out of that than when you came into that. And if I think of that that way, then I'm in service to the people around me. And I like that word. I like to end conversations with service. And so I'll try that with you, Pete. So Pete, I wanted to be of service to you. So you are extraordinarily kind to let me be on your program. I'm excited to be here. And I hope that in the future, you will reach out and let me do something for you. And it would be my great honor to do that. Oh, well, thank you. I feel like I'm being served right now because this is just so fantastically interesting to me and the audience. So, well, yeah, I'm feeling it. It's working. <laughs> Good. And what would you say is the best place for folks to learn more or get in touch with you if they want to see what this is all about? Two places. Uh, you can learn more about me personally at pauljzak.com, P-A-U-L-J-Z-A-K.com. And the book and the tools and lots of online free stuff can be found at ofactor.com, O-F-A-C-T-O-R.com. And you can email me there. And uh, I love to engage with people. You know, once you've done all this eight years worth of work, now I just want people to use it, you know, read the book, ask me questions. So please, for listeners, reach out. And if you've got crazy questions, send them along. Plus, I could be wrong. So if you (laughs) see something you think I missed, love to hear about it or some way I can help you and your company. Yeah, definitely reach out. Oh, thank you. And do you have a final 
call to action or parting words for those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? Yeah. How about this, which is really simple. Go out today or tomorrow and tell two people you work with why you appreciate them. You have to be specific. It's got to be personal. It can't just be like, ah, you're so awesome. You worked here 10 years. Go, you know what, Betty? Every day you answer the phones and you're always happy to everybody who calls. And it just makes our workplace more pleasant and makes our customers happier. Gosh, people would love to hear that. So two people, tell them why they're so important to you, why they're wonderful. Perfect. Thank you. Paul, this has been such a treat. Please keep it going. Keep spreading the love and all the good things you do. Thank you so much, Pete. What a pleasure and hope to see you again soon. I hug everybody. A great line and one I've begun using and I encourage you to do the same. And once again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items mentioned, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F124. And I do encourage you to push that subscribe button if you haven't already. So you won't miss folks like our next guest, Hank Fortner. He's got a lot to say about some things that can boost oxytocin, in particular when it comes to celebrating your teammates. So I hope to catch you then, and peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 